like I've said, whenever the noise starts to die down, I know the thoroughfare has passed, so we can, we can begin. Good to see everyone tonight. This is the Christology class um, in our Systematic Theology series. The handouts are going around, so hopefully everybody can, can get one. Hopefully we have enough of those printed out. We spent the past couple of classes... I know examining the atonement of Christ, we looked at that in a kind of a comprehensive way. And the atonement, of course, is his work to earn our salvation. We saw that his work was a once-for-all work, completely sufficient to cover the sins of as many people as will come to Christ. And we saw that it's efficient for those who come to Christ. It's totally able to cover everybody's sin, but it only applies to, to those who who come to the Lord in faith and repentance to the elect, to to God's people. And tonight we're going to see basically the last part of the atonement. We're going to see that the earthly ministry of Jesus was concluded with two final actions. And from your handout, you can see we'll look at the resurrection of Christ and also the ascension of Christ. Probably help if I started with the first slide, not the last one, huh? There we go. So here's where we are in our class. We're just about done. This is our second to last uh, class together. Uh, so uh, tonight's class will be a little bit more heavy, front heavy with the resurrection. We'll we'll spend a little bit more time on that, and and then we'll we'll move to the to the ascension of Christ. So we'll begin with the resurrection. And I'd like to actually start uh, this evening in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you would mind turning there. 1 Corinthians. And you guessed it, 1 Corinthians 15. We can't talk about the resurrection of the Lord without visiting 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be there periodically tonight, actually, throughout the the class. And uh, Pastor Brian mentioned a passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. We're actually not going to look at that passage so it'll all be fresh for us. But 1 Corinthians 15, and I'd like for us to begin in verse 13. Paul says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. If we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. What a place to to start, right? So in these few verses, Paul provides a number of horrible consequences if there were no resurrection. He does this rhetorically because, of course, there was a resurrection. He does this to illustrate how important the resurrection of Christ is to the Christian faith. Preaching the gospel would be utterly worthless without the resurrection. Faith in Christ would be without any kind of merit. Those who witnessed the resurrection and then reported it would be liars There would be no redemption from sin without the resurrection. Everyone who had already died beforehand would be without hope. 
And Christians, as MacArthur comments here, would be the most pitiable people on the earth if there were no resurrection. This is how important the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, not only to our Christology, but to our faith. Without the resurrection, the sacrifice of Christ fails to provide the grounds for salvation from sin, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, we cannot leave the resurrection out in any discussion on Christ and the work of Christ and his atonement. It's the atonement's final stamp. And there may not be a more encouraging doctrine than that of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he lives, we live. All those in Christ who have gone before us will live. So we'll break this section into three parts. We'll look at resurrection in the Old Testament then the account of Christ's resurrection in the Gospels. And finally, we'll draw out some some implications of the resurrection that I hope will will be helpful and encouraging for you. So let's first begin with resurrection in the Old Testament. An ongoing theme in this class that we've kind of naturally established almost every week is, is that Christ did not appear out of nowhere. And the things he did were not arbitrary. There was a long history of anticipation of the Messiah, who he would be, what he would accomplish. So our Christology does not begin in the New Testament. It actually begins in the Old Testament. The same is the case with with the resurrection. Now, there is a challenge sometimes in, in seeing Christ's resurrection in some of the prophetic texts of the Old Testament. And the challenge arises actually in the way some of the New Testament writers refer to the resurrection. Some of them often kind of lump the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming of Christ into one umbrella concept of his glory. So sometimes it's referenced in in kind of an oblique way, as, as MacArthur would call it. I want to give you one example of this uh, out of the book of 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter 11, and I've chosen this, this, this particular example just because I'm, I'm very familiar with it. We're, we're, we're teaching through 1 Peter with the youth group on, on Wednesday nights, and these texts are just more fresh in my mind, so that's why we're in 1 Peter here for this example. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11, as to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So we don't just look at at one verse. We look at the surrounding context. We see from verse 10 that Peter clearly is referencing previous prophetic utterances from the prophets. That's what he explicitly states. We don't have to deduce that. God, through the prophets, predicted the sufferings of Christ and then the glories to follow. They searched and inquired about these prophecies themselves. They weren't even fully revealed to the prophets. They wanted to know fully what God was going to do through the Messiah, so they searched and made inquiries about it. Now, we don't have time to go through the whole book of 1 Peter, but, for, but, but Peter is referencing three things when he speaks of the glories to follow the sufferings of Christ. He's referencing the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming. Throughout Peter's comprehensive writings, so 1 Peter and 2 Peter, 
There are eschatological themes and, and threads, particularly in 2 Peter and then localized in 1 Peter. Peter often speaks of Christ's ascension and his position at the right hand of God in 1 Peter. And just in chapter 1, verse 21, Peter states that God raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory so that we might hope in him. We'll see that in in Christ's resurrection in in a moment. He He was glorified. He had a glorified body. Peter uses this phraseology of glories of of Christ because the prophets who who prophesied used it as well. The Old Testament prophets used this same phrase, the same idea of the glory of God to encapsulate these realities, the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming. So let's keep that in mind as, as we examine a few Old Testament texts concerning the resurrection of Christ. First is Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, and lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. David, obviously referring to the resurrected, glorified Christ. He is the King of glory. The resurrected, glorified Christ will return as the King, the one who is strong and mighty, the one who is mighty in battle, the God of armies, and he will rule in glory when he returns. Ezekiel eleven twenty three, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. So according to Ezekiel, the the glory of Yahweh departed from the temple and the city to rest briefly on the mountain on the east side of the city. So I'll give you a guess about what Ezekiel might be referring to there. Later in chapter 43, Ezekiel prophesies that this same glory of God will re-enter from the same direction, from the east, referring to the future millennial temple. And there are other Old Testament prophecies that that don't use kind of the phraseology of of God's glory to refer to the resurrected Christ. A couple of examples of those. Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So David states that the Messiah himself will not be subject to the decay of death. The Messiah will not remain in the realm of the dead. David's not referring to himself here in Psalm 16. He's he's referring to his descendant who will take up his throne, the son of David. We've seen that messianic title. He's talking about Christ. Both Peter and the Apostle Paul both do a kind of exegetical explanation of this psalm in Acts chapter 2. And their conclusion is that Christ's resurrection was a prerequisite for him ascending in glory to assume the throne at the right hand of God. David is not the one sitting at the right hand of the Father. This was was obvious to to Peter and Paul. And we'll mention this as an implication of the ascension in a little bit, but the very fact that the Messiah takes his seat at the right hand of the Father proves he's risen from the dead. Job 19, verse 25, Yet as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. 
And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. The Redeemer lives, implying death has no authority over him. Death has no grip on the Messiah. Death, which is the ultimate consequence of sin, does not apply to him. And the resurrected, glorified Christ, who is the Redeemer, is the one who will take his stand on the earth at his, at his second coming. So we really don't have the resurrection mentioned much in a vacuum in the Old Testament without mention of, of some other eschatological realities, which is partly why we are examining the resurrection and the ascension in the same, in the same class. So let's actually look at the account of Christ's resurrection now in the Gospels. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27. As you're turning there, let's first be reminded that Jesus himself announced beforehand that he would rise from the dead. He did this on a number of occasions. A couple of examples of that before we look at Matthew 27. Matthew 17, verse 9. When they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Luke 18, likewise, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be ridiculed and abused and spit upon, and after they have flogged him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus himself predicted this. And this is an interesting account in Luke 18, because verse 34, which which I don't have on the screen, says, says the disciples understood none of what Jesus had told them here. The meaning of what Jesus said was hidden from them. They didn't grasp this concept of Christ's death and resurrection. They did not comprehend the things that were said. But they would. They would. They would remember these words of Christ. So now let's look at the actual account of the resurrection. All four Gospels are completely unanimous on the resurrection of Christ. There is no account of Christ in Scripture that omits the resurrection. All of the epistles in the New Testament are dependent upon the reality of the resurrection. Nearly all of them mention it in some capacity. They all assume that Jesus is living. He's alive. And He's reigning in heaven. He is the exalted head of the church. Then you have the book of Revelation, which repeatedly shows that the living, glorified, ascended Christ reigning in heaven, and it predicts his return in glory. So the entire New Testament bears witness to the resurrection of of Christ. We could look at any of the Gospels, but for sake of time, we'll just look at one of these accounts in Matthew 27. Hopefully you've, you've already turned there. Let's begin reading and set the context in verse 45, Matthew 27. We'll look at the crucifixion. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 50. Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split 
verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, this man really was God's son. Verse 57, when it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there facing the tomb. Now chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel told the women, Don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been resurrected, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. And just then, Jesus met them and said, Good morning. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. So again, the the New Testament, full of this account of the resurrection of Jesus. Eyewitness accounts. It's all over the place. All four Gospels account this. This is but one of those accounts. The wrath of God poured out upon Christ, as evidenced by the, the darkness that covered Judea when he was on On the cross, we saw that last week. He yielded up his spirit voluntarily. No one took his life. He had the authority to give it up. He was then buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, an unused tomb, I might add. He was born in an unused womb and was buried in an unused tomb. The women visited the the tomb on the third day and found it empty. The stone rolled away. This angelic being telling them he is risen, just like he had said. They leave with great joy to tell the disciples, and then they themselves encounter the risen Christ. And they fall on their faces and worship, because what other response would there be? Here we see Christ conquered death, risen from the dead. Both the Father and the Son participated in the resurrection. Some texts affirm that the Father specifically raised Christ from the dead. Romans 6, 4 is an example of that. Other texts speak of Jesus as as, uh, participating in, in his resurrection as well. Jesus speaks of his authority to lay down his life and to take it up again in John 10. 
In John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. When Christ rose from the dead, He rose bodily. It was a resurrection that included His humanity. Fully God, fully man. This included His humanity. And we know this because after the resurrection, Luke 24 tells us that Jesus ate. Other humans were able to touch Him. Matthew 28 and John 20. The wounds of the crucifixion were present and visible in His resurrected body as as witnessed by, by Thomas. Now Christ's resurrection wasn't simply just a a coming back from the dead, like with Lazarus. After Lazarus was raised from the dead, he continued to live and then age and eventually died again. Not so was the case with, with Jesus. Jesus, Scripture tells us, was glorified in his resurrection. His physical human body was was transformed, made perfect, not subject to to weakness or aging. The physical human body of Jesus was able to live eternally. He had a transformed body. Scripture tells us that some people initially had a little bit of difficulty recognizing him at first. The disciples walked with him on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and they didn't recognize him. In John 20, it took Mary Magdalene a moment to realize that it it was Jesus. In Luke 24, he appeared to his disciples and and they were were frightened of him until he showed them the the nail marks in his hands and his feet and they watched him eat and they realized then it, it was the Lord. There was continuity between the body of Jesus before his resurrection and after. Those who knew him recognized him. But his body was transformed, and and, and it wasn't exactly the same. But it was a bodily resurrection. And the resurrection of of Christ wasn't a a spirit or a specter or ghost. He wasn't a superstition like, like some of the Jews tended to believe. He had a glorified physical body. Jesus did not rise from the dead go on to live a ripe old age, and then died again. No, death was over for him. And because of that, it's over for us too. He had a resurrection body. He was glorified, and then, as we'll see, he he ascended to heaven. I would submit to you the resurrection of our Lord is the inflection point in human history. It's when everything changed. There's no greater event in redemption history than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection must be believed in order for a person to experience salvation. Romans 10 tells us that. And I'd like for us to be reminded, again, that that the Christian faith, these these accounts, it's it's not a mystical, blind faith that's dependent upon ancient legends or or trite traditions. One of the Hindu scriptures is called the Bhagavad Gita. It's essentially their their Bible, or one of their Bibles. And Hindu tradition holds that the Bhagavad Gita was narrated by a legendary enlightened sage named Vyasa. And as he began narrating this enlightened Hindu scripture for the first time, the elephant-headed god Ganesha heard him speaking and broke off one of its tusks, and using the tusk it wrote down, 
what this enlightened sage narrated. And that's how they got their Bible. The Christian faith isn't, isn't like this. The accounts of the resurrection of Christ aren't a mystical download through enlightenment or through visions or through an angel or through an elephant god. The Gospels and the book of Acts are eyewitness accounts. They saw this with their eyes. And then God inscripturated it into his word. We'll see in a moment with the ascension that many, many people saw the resurrected Jesus. He spent almost two months verifying that he was indeed risen. He spent time with people. His resurrection is the reality that they saw with their, with their eyes. Now, before we move on to, to some implications of the resurrection, I did want to briefly confront a, a question that, that tends, to, tends to arise when discussing Christology around this point. I thought about including this just as an implication of the resurrection, but as I thought about it, it's not, it's not really an implication of the resurrection. It just kind of comes up here. And the question is this, what happened to Jesus after he died, but before he rose? He died on the cross and then rose again on the third day. What was he doing on the other days? Where was he? There is a prominent view that would say that Christ actually descended into hell during those, during those days. And that view kind of forks in, in one of two directions. One direction would say he, he went there and he preached his victory to unbelieving human souls that died before his ministry and he gave them an opportunity to repent and be freed. The other direction would say he went there actually to complete the atonement. He went there to suffer in hell for a couple of days to receive God's wrath. We know that that direction con- concretely is wrong. He did not go to hell to complete the atonement. That was finished on the cross. God's wrath poured out upon Christ on the cross as evidenced by, by the darkness. He, he, he received that wrath and he declared it is finished. But what about the other direction that this view takes? He descended to hell to preach to unbelievers and maybe, maybe gave them an opportunity to repent. Is this a correct view to have as, as part of our Christology? Well, there's one text that's often used to support this view that Christ descended into hell. And it's, it's in 1 Peter Chapter 3, I actually preached this text to the youth group several weeks ago, so this is fresh on my mind. 1 Peter 3, 18-20. Peter says, For Christ also suffered for, for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God, after being put to death in the, in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. In that state, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. So some take this little bit of text to mean that that Christ descended into hell and preached his triumph to dead unbelievers who were there and perhaps freed them from hell. There are some creeds and catechisms and confessions that reflect this view, some of which we would respect most of. Other creeds and confessions and catechisms make no mention of a view like this. So I would say, let's just look at the Bible. Now, on the basis of this text, I personally lean away from the view that that would say Christ descended into hell and preached to unbelievers 
for a couple of reasons. The first, Christ directed his proclamation to the spirits. The spirits here is not the New Testament word for, for human souls. If Peter intended to say that, I, I think he would have used the, the typical Greek word to indicate human souls. This word for spirits in our passage, the New Testament never uses to refer to people dead or otherwise, unless it's governed by a genitive, and there's no genitive in view here. Second, Peter says that Christ proclaimed his triumph to the spirits in prison. So this word for prison means prison. It means a place of imprisonment. This is not the word for hell or Hades or Sheol or Tartarus, any of, any of the terms used to refer to the realm of the dead. None of those terms for the realm of the dead appear in this text. And this word for prison here in this passage never refers to the realm of the dead anywhere else in the New Testament. So if that's what Peter is referring to, this is the only time in the New Testament that prison is used to describe the realm of the dead. The text also you know, doesn't say he descended anywhere, it just says he went. The passage also doesn't say that these disobedient spirits were freed or given an opportunity for, for repentance. The word for proclamation here is not the same word for evangelizing. Christ just declared his victory. He authoritative, in an authoritative way, he declared it. The text doesn't reflect that he did an evangelistic ministry here. So for those reasons, I'd, I would personally lean away from the view that would reflect the spirit of Christ descending into hell to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. I just don't see that in this, in this passage. So, what are the spirits Christ preached to? And what is the prison? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. There's a view among many we would respect that states Christ went to the place the book of Revelation refers to as the bottomless pit and preached to the fallen angels that are in prison there, specifically the sons of God in Genesis 6, as Peter links this to the time of Noah, in the second part of verse 20, as you can see. Problems with that view uh, as well. I think Pastor Brian said when asked this, this question a few weeks ago, um, he said, we'll find out one day what, what Peter's referring to exactly here. Dr. Al Mohler wrote a book on the Apostles' Creed called The Apostles' Creed. And his commentary on this particular section of the creed is really short. And he says, very well, I think, we only go as far as the scripture goes. And we don't go any further. I think that's really helpful when, when confronting an issue like this. What is abundantly clear in this text in 1 Peter is that Christ made a triumphant proclamation. His victory was won. He firmly declared he was indeed victorious over sin, over death, over hell, and over Satan. He, triumph, he, he triumphantly proclaims that the head of the serpent has been crushed by his work on the cross. The power of the enemy is broken. And this is, of course, evidenced in his, in his resurrection. So a few implications of the resurrection. There are a lot of implications we could unpack. I wanted to provide just a handful tonight. I, I think when I was preparing for this, I started with eight. <laughs> so I quantified them as best I could into two that are, that are kind of layered. So we're going to see implication within implication, uh, even, even more than I've, I've outlined for you uh, in, your, in your handout. So first, the resurrection of Christ verifies God's approval of the atonement. 
So the resurrection of Christ is God's stamp of approval on the atonement Christ has provided. If Christ's work was not enough, he wouldn't have risen from the dead. The resurrection seals the work of Christ as sufficient and satisfying to the Father. Sacrifice is not needed anymore. His work on the cross, as we've seen, was a once-for-all sacrifice. And that once-for-all sacrifice was made evident in the resurrection. The resurrection, therefore, ensures our salvation, specifically our justification. You would not be saved without the resurrection of Jesus. You would have no hope without the resurrection. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ means everything for our faith as we established in our, in our text in 1 Corinthians 15. Romans 4, verse 25, Paul says, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The Apostle Paul here explicitly connects our justification with the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection provided proof that God has accepted the sacrifice of the Son, that He would be able to be just and justify the ungodly. Justification, of course, is the legal declaration from God that you are righteous in Christ. Wayne Grudem writes of this, In the resurrection, God was saying to Jesus, I approve of what you've done. I accept your substitution. And you and those in you find favor in my sight. So we should understand the resurrection as God's stamp of approval on the, on the atonement. The resurrection solidified your not guilty verdict in Christ. The resurrection also ensures our regeneration. It ensures our regeneration. Christ's resurrection ensures that you are a new creature upon conversion. You have been born again. There is evidenced new life in a believer. You are born a second time and you are a new man when you look to Christ and repent. Your heart is changed. Your direction is changed. And the resurrection ensured this. 1 Peter 1.3 Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here, Scripture explicitly connects Christ's resurrection with our regeneration, our new birth. In his resurrection, Jesus earned for us a new life, a new life like his, a life that is suited for God-glorifying obedience and worship while we're still here. Our resurrection body is coming. We'll see that in a minute. At conversion, you don't get your glorified body immediately, but you're still made new. You don't achieve perfection, but you do have a new direction, as Pastor Brian says. Peter in verse 3 here says, according to God's mercy, according to God's very character, he has given us a new birth. He is the one who grants this to those who would believe. His atonement, again, is sufficient for all, but efficient for those who believe, the church. You're made new, a new identity, new desires, new character, a new direction a new heart. This is what characterizes a Christian, a real Christian. A real Christian will be distinct from 
someone who is not. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but their lives aren't characterized by a new birth. There's no discernible difference between their before Christ life and their after Christ life. You can't make a judgment on someone's heart or motives, but you can discern an outward life. There is clear regeneration, and that's evidenced over time as faith is tested and their Christ-likeness develops. If you make a profession of faith and then go on to live the next 20 years for yourself and for your desires, living consistently in unrepentant sin, then there's a good chance that profession of faith may not have been genuine at all. A new creature in Christ is what a Christian is. And this regeneration is accomplished and ensured through the resurrection of the Lord. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Here's the practical point with this. There is spiritual life in a Christian. A real Christian, someone who is truly in Christ, regenerated, is not spiritually dead. Now, this doesn't mean that a believer won't have what we refer to as dry seasons, for lack of a better term. Sometimes our emotions, our feelings, don't align rightly with what we know and believe. Hardship comes that that tests and tries us. Sometimes you don't feel very spiritual. You know, it's a good thing that God's Word never, ever says that your standing before God is dependent upon the way you feel or dependent upon some high and lofty spiritual experience. Your redemption is dependent upon one person's experience, and it's not yours. It's Christ's. We look to Christ and his work. Romans 6, verses 4 and 11. Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does new life in Christ look like? Romans 6 tells us. Now, Pastor Brian's preaching through these texts in Romans, so I won't attempt to rehash his messages. But there is new character in the life of a believer. Christ was raised so that we might be raised and walk in a new way of life. Sin and self governed your life previously, but now you walk in a new way. Something else governed your life now. Sin characterized your old life. Righteousness characterizes your new life. This is regeneration, a new heart, a new direction, and it's ensured in the resurrection of Christ. Secondly here, The resurrection of Christ guarantees our resurrection. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Our resurrection is often associated with His in the New Testament. This is a common pattern in Paul's writings to the Corinthians, both in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. 1st Corinthians 6.14, God raised us up in the Lord and will also, or excuse me, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. 2 Corinthians 4.14, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus 
and present us with you. Paul is referring to the believer's body to be changed, transformed, raised, glorified, just like Christ. Christ's resurrection is the basis for ours. MacArthur says, The glorified bodies of believers and the Lord have an eternal relationship that will never perish. The most extensive discussion on this connection between Christ's resurrection and our own is, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. Here Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep, those who have died. This is an agricultural metaphor to indicate that we will be like Christ. Just as the first fruits of a crop show what the rest of the harvest will be like for that crop. So Christ as the first fruits shows us what our resurrection bodies will be like when he raises us from the dead. Paul then expounds in in more detail to ensure believers that their bodies will not be the same when they're raised. They won't have the same weaknesses, just like Christ's body was different when he was raised. He received a glorified body at his resurrection, and so will all those who have died in Christ when they're raised. A recognizable but glorified body. You go into the ground with a perishable body, but you'll be raised with an imperishable one. Sown in dishonor and weakness, raised in glory and power. I mean, what a, what a life-giving truth this is for believers. What hope this is. We aren't perfect in this life, we know that. Even though we're redeemed with a new heart, we still commit sin because we live in the same world and the same body. As Pastor Brian said, sin's still yelling at us. We're not immediately glorified upon conversion. We won't be perfect in this life, but there will come a day when we will be made perfect. The resurrection of Jesus ensured this because his body was made perfect. Maybe there's a sin that you are consistently tempted with throughout your life. Maybe there's a particular sin you've waged war on for years and it just keeps fighting back. It just keeps yelling at you from the sidelines. If you're in Christ then there will come a day when you will no longer even to be tempted, when that sin will not have a voice at all. You'll be silenced. That sin has been defeated at the cross, and because of the resurrection, you have the power to experience victory over it now, but again, there will come a day when that temptation is obliterated permanently. Amen. So be encouraged in that. Wage war on your sin. Our resurrection is coming. So much more. So much more we could unpack in light of the resurrection of Christ, but we need to turn our attention now for the little bit of time we have left to the ascension, the ascension of Christ. So we will approach this kind of in a similar way as the resurrection. We'll examine the account of Christ's ascension and then some implications.
So go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, that's where we see the account of the ascension of Christ. Acts 1, let's begin reading in verse 3. After he had suffered, he had also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. So this is the account of the ascension of Christ. After the resurrection, Jesus was with them for another 40 days, proving to them he was indeed risen. He wasn't a ghost. Scripture tells us elsewhere that Christ was seen by many people. In addition to the numerous times he appeared with his disciples, he was witnessed by over 500 people in 1 Corinthians 15. He he spent this 40-day period verifying, again, he was indeed risen. And after this 40-day kind of verification period was completed, Christ then, then ascended. Literally, he was taken up and a cloud took him. This should be understood as God the Father taking Christ to heaven in his glorified body. Jesus fulfilled his declarations and then physically departed from the earth to heaven from the Mount of Olives. He ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. This testifies again to his completed work of redemption. And like with the with the resurrection, the Old Testament is, is not silent on, on this act of Christ, the ascension. Mostly, the, the post-ascension ministry of Christ is seen by him sitting at the right hand of God. There are a lot of Old Testament texts that refer to the Messiah sitting at the right hand of God. And like we mentioned um, a minute ago and examined in the Old Testament, it very seldom talks about the resurrection in a vacuum. Well, it hardly ever talks about the ascension in a vacuum. It's all lumped together in the glory of God. But there is a notable example, and it's, it's heavily implied in Zechariah 14. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west, forming a large valley. Half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Zechariah is actually expounding on the prophecy given by Ezekiel that we looked at earlier regarding the resurrection. He specifies the Mount of Olives as the site to the east of the city, and the Messiah as the one who possesses the divine glory. And of course, the Mount of Olives is the site of Christ's ascension, just like we read in Acts 1. Christ returns in the same way he left. 
And this is referenced in, in the words of the angelic beings immediately after Christ ascended. This is what they say to those who are standing there staring into the sky, wondering what just happened. He's going to come back in the same way you've watched him go into heaven. This prophecy related to Messiah in the Mount of Olives. So let's conclude tonight with some, with some implications of Christ's ascension. You may not immediately realize that there are theological implications just, just to that short account that we read in Acts 1. There are implications even for us regarding the ascension of Christ, and hopefully those will be made clear. And like with the resurrection, these implications are, are kind of layered, so it's more than just two. First, the ascension verifies that heaven is a real place. The ascension verifies that heaven is a real place. You don't need to read 90 Minutes in Heaven or Heaven is for Real or watch those movies to believe in the reality of heaven because Scripture tells us clearly that heaven is a real place. Specifically, the ascension verifies that heaven is indeed a real place. The account in Acts that we examine tells us that he ascended to a place. He went somewhere. He didn't just dematerialize into some kind of spirit, spirit being. He was taken up into heaven where, where, where the Father is. The two angelic beings explicitly state this to those who, who witnessed it. Among other things, the ascension proves to us that heaven is indeed a place. It's a location. It's not a state of mind. It's not a kind of soul sleep. It's not a hyperbolic clouds with harp-playing angels like you see in the cartoons. It's a place, and it's where Jesus ascended to. It's where he is right now in the heavenly throne room at the right hand of God, interceding for us now. Wayne Groom says that the ascension of Jesus is designed to teach us that heaven does exist as a place. And just quickly on this, Christ was bodily resurrected, and he bodily ascended. In, in short, Christ took his glorified body with him. He didn't leave it here. He didn't become a ghost or spirit when he ascended to heaven. He ascended bodily. And the ascension also evidences Christ's victory. The ascension evidences Christ's victory. He ascended into heaven and received glory and honor, and authority. He is exalted above all others. Paul says that God has highly exalted him in Philippians 3. Peter is even more specific about this in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. Jesus was highly exalted to the right hand of God. He is at God's right hand in heaven, the place of, of victory. Psalm 110, verse 1 this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Messiah was always to be seated at the right hand of God. This is the implication of the ascension. This is where he went. The right hand is, is a symbol of, of authority. It's a symbol of honor. It's a symbol of victory. When Christ ascended into heaven, this was... This was fulfilled. Jesus was not a defeated prophet. He is the victorious Messiah. He's at the position of honor and authority. Next time we'll 
examine a bit of what Jesus is doing right now at the right hand of God. He's advocating, interceding. His ongoing work now is not that of sacrifice. It's of intercession. Hebrews 1.3, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So this is not only victory, but it's superiority. This is the position of supremacy. The right hand of the Father is the position of ultimate supremacy. Only a victor takes this seat. The victor who conquered sin, death, and the devil on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ, the victory has been achieved. This is definitely not a picture of somebody defeated, is it? Therefore, the plan of redemption will not ever be thwarted. The plan of redemption will not ever be thwarted. Christ has provided the once-for-all atonement for humanity. God has accepted the atonement as reflected in the resurrection. And Christ, the Messiah, holds the authority and supremacy as reflected in His ascension. There is one person who sits at the right hand of God. Jesus, the Savior. He is victorious. He is the enthroned Son of God who has accomplished the atoning work needed to save sinners. This is the theological reality of the ascension. So what's the significance then? Is this just theological data for seminary students and theologians and pastors? Well, it's significant in two ways. First, it shows us that Christ's work of redemption is indeed complete. It shows us his his work is complete. Jesus, as a glorified and ascended man, is a visible demonstration that the redemption of man was finished and nothing else is needed. Jesus isn't continually dying on the cross. His atonement was a once-for-all sacrifice. This was mentioned to you last week from, from the pulpit. I'm spurred to mention it again. Do you notice around Easter, when our church puts up the the three crosses on the, on the platform over there. Have you noticed who's not hanging on the middle one? Jesus is not hanging on that cross. That's intentional. We don't mount Jesus on the cross because he's not there. He is risen. He's ascended. If you want a mental image of Jesus now, picture him on the throne in heaven interceding for you. That's what he's doing. The work of atonement is finished and Christ is in heaven at the right hand of God. The ascension reminds us that the work of redemption is complete. Second, it shows Christ's triumphant authority. It shows Christ's triumphant authority. The right hand of the king was a euphemism for his power and his authority over his subjects. Jesus, the Son of God who took on human nature, has ultimate authority over all creation. He is the Lord. Ephesians 1, verse 20, he demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, every title given, not only in this age, but in also the one to come. Jesus, the son of David, is the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. He has been given a name that is above every name. He is above all other rulers. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is far above any authority on this earth. His power and dominion are supreme. He is the very master of creation. And he sits at God's right hand. All of his enemies will one day be placed into subjection under his feet. He will reign supreme on the earth when he returns at his second coming. His first coming was as a suffering savior, and his second coming, he'll be coming as a conquering king who will reign unopposed and put an end to evil and evildoers. He'll return as king and judge. Through his victory, he's guaranteed to come again. We've seen at the beginning of the class and in the Old Testament that the ascension of Christ is often connected with other eschatological realities like his second coming. He is returning in the same way he left. We examined that already. He was bodily resurrected, he bodily ascended, and he will bodily return again in the same way. His his glorious return will see Christ as king over all. He will return to the earth with divine power and glory to judge the living inhabitants of the earth. The prophet Zephaniah explicitly portrays the judgment of the earth through, through the Messiah. Christ is described as a mighty one there. The Father has already given all authority to the Son to reign and execute judgment. John 5, 27, He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. And this judgment is the subject matter of the the book of Revelation. Christ will then establish His millennial kingdom on the earth. We'll examine more of His office as king next time. And also within this evidence of, of victory, the ascension ensures our final home is with Christ. Specifically, the resurrection as well as the ascension gives us assurance of our heavenly home. This is kind of a joint implication. And Jesus said this before his crucifixion in John 14. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. The fact that Jesus has ascended into heaven and achieves this goal gives us great assurance that we will follow him there too. Haven't you realized more and more over the past couple of years that this world is not our home? Haven't you realized that? Not only how dead in sin folks are, but a world that doesn't want to accommodate basic truths of creation. A world that that refuses to live in basic reality where men are men and women are women. A world where all manner of sin is virtually normalized and demanded to be celebrated. Laws enacted that enable sin and make it much harder for people to turn to Jesus. A culture that's hateful of God and and His righteousness and despises God's people. I mean, we're, we're seeing practically in real time that Christians are indeed strange and bizarre aliens in this world. As Peter says in 1 Peter, if you're in Christ, this world's not your home. The kingdom of Christ is. We are citizens of His kingdom, and He is the King. We are loyal to Him. But we're here right now, aren't we? When you're converted, justified, regenerated by the blood of Christ, we're not immediately taken to heaven with our glorified bodies. We have a mission to accomplish first. Christ said before he ascended to go into all the earth, make other disciples, 
Speak the gospel. Speak, speak the truth. So those who are still dead in their sins might be made alive in Jesus just like you were. So if you're in Christ, then live in the power of the resurrection. Take, take the gospel to them who are dead in their sins because they're doomed in their sins without the gospel. Maybe some of you know someone who professes to be a Christian, but, but that person's like Jacob Marley, dead as a doornail. Spiritually without life, under sin's domain, under the prince of the power of the air, living, them, living for themselves, giving no regard to their creator. Take these excellencies of Christ to them, even if they've made a profession of faith. Take it to them. They need to hear it. So we've examined the resurrection and the ascension tonight. The resurrection means, means everything, doesn't it? I mean, without the resurrection, we're still in our sins, as, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And the ascension solidifies his victory. He is at the right hand of God, even now, advocating for his, for his people. Next time in our, in our final class, we'll examine this intercessory ministry of Christ and his office as priest. We'll spend a good chunk of the class examining the nature of, of Christ's priesthood. His priesthood is, a, is according to the order of Melchizedek. Ever wonder what that means? We'll look at that. We'll also examine his office as prophet, even greater than Moses. We'll examine his office as king. He is the king of kings, the ruler of creation, the Davidic king that was promised. And the king will return in glory as ruler and as, and as judge. That's how we'll end our, our Christology class. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the church. Thank you for redeeming us and making us unified in you, clothing us in your righteousness. Lord, let us always look to your resurrection for hope. Let us look to your ascension as, as victory, and let us not lose heart as we live in this world that we know is not our own, that is hostile against us. Your resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Let us hope in that this week. In Christ's name, amen.